This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, February 9th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Rachel Delgidis. My colleague at the Daily Signal and co-host of the Daily Signal podcast, Virginia Allen, interviews Dr. Michael Minna, an assistant professor of epidemiology and immunology at the Harvard School of Public Health and an associate medical director of microbiology at Harvard Medical School to discuss how rapid response COVID-19 tests could dramatically decrease COVID-19 cases. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump are demanding that his impeachment be dismissed as the impeachment trial is set to begin on Tuesday. David Schoen and Bruce Castor, who are representing Trump in the Senate hearing, authored a 78-page document in defense of Trump and say that the impeachment is unconstitutional. The article of impeachment presented by the House is unconstitutional for a variety of reasons, any of which alone would be grounds for immediate dismissal, Schoen and Castor write. Taken together, they demonstrate conclusively that indulging House Democrats' hunger for this political theater is a danger to our republic, democracy, and the rights that we hold dear. The House impeachment managers released a fiery brief of their own on Monday. The Democrats wrote, Even after he incited insurrection, President Trump took numerous steps on January 6th that further incited the insurgents to escalate their violence and siege of the Capitol. The House managers also stated, President Trump's repeated claims about a rigged and stolen election were false, no matter how many contortions his lawyers undertake to avoid saying so. When President Trump demanded that the armed, angry crowd at his Save America rally fight like hell, or you're not going to have a country anymore, he wasn't urging them to form political action committees about election security in general. And when the President of the United States demanded that Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger find enough votes to overturn the election or else face a big risk to you and a criminal offense, that was obviously a threat, one which reveals his state of mind and his desperation to try to retain power by any means necessary. The House looks forward to proving each of these points at trial. Texas Congressman Ron Wright, a Republican who served in the House since 2019, has died after contracting COVID-19. Wright, 67, had tested positive for coronavirus at the end of January. A statement from his campaign via The Hill read, Congressman Ron Wright passed away peacefully at the age of 67 on February 7, 2021. His wife Susan was by his side and he is now in the presence of their Lord and Savior. Now stay tuned for Virginia's conversation on rapid tests for COVID-19. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time watching silly videos on the internet. But it's 2021. Maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy. All brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube 
and don't forget to subscribe and share. I am joined by Dr. Michael Minna, an assistant professor of epidemiology and immunology at the Harvard School of Public Health and an associate medical director of microbiology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Minna, thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be here. You spoke at a Heritage Foundation event not long ago titled Rapid COVID Tests, A Cure for Lockdowns, a Complement to Vaccines. The response to COVID-19 really across America has so much so largely been to quarantine as much as possible, to wear a mask, social distance when you have to go out, and wait to be vaccinated. But Dr. Minute, you propose that we actually have a much better and more effective solution that we really just haven't taken advantage of. Could you explain what exactly that solution is? Sure. Yes, the solution is, at its heart, uh, effectively to empower people to know their own status. And by that, I mean for people to understand, are they infectious right now? Do they have infectious virus in them? that could uh, be potentially harmful to others around them. And the way that we could do this, the way that we could empower and inform people of whether or not they have infectious virus is through the use of frequent rapid testing, testing that people can perform at home on their own terms to know their status, to know, do they have the virus? Is it at a level, uh, if so, that is infectious? And, uh, and if so, to stay home that day, but do it on their own terms. If they want to report, they could report voluntarily. Uh, but many people in this country don't want to report their health status. And I think we have to respect that. That is a position that many people hold and work with people, meet people where they're at and allowing them to know if they are infected and if they are contagious with SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19 is uh, a tool that we could be using daily across the country right now if we uh, were to choose to, to act in that direction. So explain just a little bit of the practicality of these tests. I mean, how complicated is it for someone to perform a test on themselves? How much would this cost? How would they be produced? These tests are extremely simple. They are effectively like a pregnancy test. Uh, you, uh, if you have two lines, you're positive. If you're one line, you're negative. The way that it works is uh, you take a swab uh, and you just swab the front of your nose. Uh, not way, it's not one of these really deep uh, swabs that make you feel like you're poking your brain. Uh, and it is, uh, it's just a, a shallow swab in the front of your nose. You, you put that swab usually into a little tube of buffer or liquid. And then you put a couple drops of that liquid onto a paper strip test, just like a pregnancy test. And uh, so it's extremely simple. Uh, young children could do it. Adults could do it. Elderly people could do it. Uh, the tests can be made in huge numbers. Uh, if we really try to build some of the, the most simple of these tests, we could be making tens of millions of these every day. We could have been doing this many months ago. The technology is old. Like I said, it's the same technology, just like a pregnancy test. It actually uses the same type of, of tools for it. Uh, the cost can be very low. What I would personally like to see is the government 
make bulk purchases and essentially provide these to public health agencies and the public health agencies provide them to people at home through the mail or however they get distributed. Maybe they're distributed at your grocery store around the block. Um, but short of that, if it is, if the if we do land in an area where people ultimately have to pay for them, they can they can be four or five dollars a piece. I think at scale, they can come down even further. Two dollars a piece per test is not uh, an unreasonable amount to consider that we could get to with scale. During the Heritage Foundation event a few weeks ago discussing these tests, you said that really ideally we would see Americans maybe taking a test about twice a week. So if if all Americans were taking an at-home COVID test twice every week uh, and then were choosing to stay home if that test came back positive, how quickly would we actually, in theory, begin to see a dramatic decline in positive cases? If we actually had most Americans using a test like this twice a week, we would see a decline overall in this country by 50 or 60 percent in a couple of weeks, by more than that in a month and you know, by two months into such a rigorous testing program, the outbreaks would go away. This is something that I call uh, public health testing. It's not medical testing. It's not diagnostic testing. The goal of public health testing or public health screening is to essentially stop outbreaks from spreading. The way that this works is an outbreak will only spread if uh, you infect more people than who are currently infected. So if you have 100 people infected today, and those 100 people go on and infect 130 people, then the outbreak escalates exponentially. And after four weeks in that scenario, you'd have 500 new infections four weeks later. On the other hand, if you can just get 100 people to infect 90 people, and you do that for a few weeks in a row, then all of a sudden, instead of 100 people getting infected each day, you have 30 people getting infected each day. So the relative gain, it's a 90% reduction against what we have now. And that's just if 100 people infect 90. With this type of testing, we could absolutely get to 100 people infecting 40 new people, 100 100 people infecting, even if half of the population chooses not to participate or just chooses to throw their results away and say, I don't care, I'm still going to work or I'm still going to church, it would still be enough to actually get that R value, get 100 people to infect fewer than 100 people. It's not, we don't have a long way to go to get there. And these tests would make all the difference between exponential increases in cases versus exponential decay of outbreaks. You're really on the front lines of researching this virus, of researching solutions. At what point in in your research did the light bulb kind of go off of this is the answer? And then why does it seem like, you know, the rest of the medical community, the CDC is not really getting behind this? Uh, This became pretty readily apparent back in April uh, for me, and I started publishing on it back then. 
and I also started publishing back then on uh, on the C- on the PCR test and and why the PCR test was kind of being misunderstood. Um, the problem and the reason I bring PCR up is uh, we have this incessant uh, sort of continued and persistent uh, uh, infatuation with the PCR test. The PCR test has to be done in a laboratory. It takes days to get results back. It takes amazing amount of manpower and expertise to run these labs. We're never going to scale up in the way that we actually need to tackle an outbreak. The PCR test is a medical test. It's designed to diagnose people so that when I put on my physician hat and a patient comes to me and says, Dr. Minna, I have been feeling well for two weeks. I want to be able to use a test that can tell my patient, it looks like you uh, have had COVID recently or maybe have it today. But for public health, that's not the right test. For public health, we need a test that is fast, that can be used frequent enough to actually catch people when they're transmitting and that is accessible. And we don't want a test that stays positive for weeks after somebody is infectious. The PCR test, unfortunately, stays positive for weeks after people are infectious. And the FDA, as well as, unfortunately, our CDC and others, continue to require that all of these rapid paper strip tests, which are also called rapid antigen tests, the requirement is that they get compared to a PCR test out in the world in order to be authorized. And what that means is that if I have already recovered from COVID, my PCR test today might stay positive. But if I use one of these rapid antigen paper strip tests, it should be negative. But the FDA would would look at that result and say, aha, the paper strip test failed. We are not going to authorize that. But from my personal perspective, I would say, no, it succeeded. I have already gotten over my infection. I don't want to test that tells me that I need to continue isolating. I want a test that tells me if I need to isolate today, not if I needed to isolate two weeks ago. So there is a disconnect. The science is so clear. We know PCR stays positive for so long, but the FDA to this day requires that these, that every test be compared against the PCR. I'll give a very quick example uh, of how ridiculous this is. Uh, If I am an x-ray machine company and I'm going to the FDA and I say, FDA, I want to create this new x-ray machine and put it into hospitals. Uh, It's good for tracking people with pneumonia or whatever the reason, uh, uh, or broken bones. The FDA, the equivalent situation is the FDA would say, that's not good enough because we just saw how good an MRI machine does and your x-ray is not good enough. Uh, that that's not the they're different purposes. The speed and the accessibility are wholly different, and uh, unfortunately, the FDA has not been able to understand this. Well, it just seems so illogical. Like I'm feeling frustrated just hearing hearing you explain uh, the fact that this is such an obvious solution, and yet no action has been taken on it. So, what what does need to be done? You know whether maybe, I don't know if it's members of Congress or individuals in the medical community to really put pressure on the Food and Drug Administration, on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and say, hey, this actually is a legitimate 
legitimate solution and we need to move forward on it. I mean, is is there anything that at this point can really uh, get this train moving in the right direction? No, I have um, I have published on this in the in the top journals in the world. So scientists know about this. Meta- physicians generally have heard about it, but there's so much confusion because most people don't really understand the science of testing, even though all you really have to know is what I just explained to you, which is, you know, it's a ver- it's really a pretty simple concept at heart. What, uh, you know, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what the, what the best avenue is. Is it to consider, continue having scientists kind of try to rally around this? I don't think that's going to work. I think what really needs to happen now is we need pressure from, we need Congress, we need senators, we need governors, we need uh, the president's administration, I, you know, as high as it needs to go. We need people to recognize that the science exists, recognize that there is uh, a, a void, a misinformation and a misalignment of priorities at the FDA at the moment, uh, where the FDA is prioritizing medical diagnostic tests that I would want if I'm a hospital director, and they are not able to see their way to a test that is designed specifically to stop transmission at the community level and to open up schools and businesses. So I think what we need is some pressure being applied uh, to say to the FDA, look, you're doing a wonderful job evaluating medical diagnostic tests but now it's time to create a new pathway at the FDA that also is, uh, is able to evaluate tests in the context of public health. We have not seen that yet, uh, but what we do know is that at least at this moment in time, the president has stated that uh, he wants a rapid test to be a, a large uh, part of a program forward. Uh, so now we really need to see uh, the action uh, towards that, and part of that action is ensuring that the tests we have today that can be used in the tens of millions today on American soil are actually getting evaluated and put out as fast as possible. So Dr. Mina, practically speaking, what is the cost of actually uh, you know, getting these tests mass produced and then into the homes of Americans all over the country? If the government were going to actually pay for all of this. It would cost about $20 billion. $20 billion would get us to a point where uh, every American could have these tests on a routine basis uh, in a sufficient quantity, say twice per week, uh, where we could actually uh, stop the spread of this virus. But we don't know, in, in my opinion, $20 billion is not a lot of money here. It's a drop in the bucket, you know, compared to the $16 trillion price tag that this uh, virus has. It's 0.1% uh, essentially of the, the price tag of this virus. And it would get us to a place where we could potentially actually completely control the epidemic and the outbreaks on our soil. Uh, it is not only, however, left to the government to make all the purchases. There are major multinational uh, uh, and international companies that are absolutely willing to pay for these tests to keep their offices open, to keep their employees employed. I'm actually already working with some to do clinical trials since they're not FDA approved yet. And so I think that we would see a combination of the government stepping in to pay for some of it 
And we would also see massive investments from companies that it, they recognize that it's absolutely worth their while to keep their employees safe, to make their environments as safe as possible. So are you optimistic that we'll be able to actually see some action and movement forward on this and that this might still be something um, that can take place where we are able to mass produce these tests and, and distribute them? Uh, I do think so. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, I think we are starting to see now increased movement uh, to really get them uh, starting to be built uh Unfortunately, the government is currently still blocking the biggest companies that are able to really make these tests in the highest scale. Uh, they are um, investing in the in certain tests that aren't public health tests that just aren't going to scale, like the Illum test that came out. It's a great test, but it is a it's the kind of test that should live in a pediatrician's office. It will not be used frequently. It's too expensive and too it's got circuit boards and batteries in every single one, and they all get thrown away. But we just invested a lot of money into that, uh, you know, ultimately for enough tests that will be essentially a drop in the bucket for, for our, our needs. So I think that the priorities haven't been fully aligned and really planned out. But I do believe we're starting to see an increased uh, understanding that rapid tests are crucial. The faster you get results, the faster you can stop spread. And, uh, and I think that uh, I hope that we continue to see some movement, but I really do believe we need some, uh, we need Congress to be up in arms about this. This is a tool that could keep everyone's constituents safe, you know, within, within weeks. Well, it's, it's definitely obviously impossible to know what could have been, but if we went back to March or April, right at the kind of the onset of the spread of COVID-19, and right away, these tests were produced, were distributed to Americans, even people all over the world. At this point, where do you think we would be in the fight against the virus if we had done this, had these rapid response tests available to individuals from the onset? Uh, you know, we would have had an extremely different fall, I believe, very firmly, that our fall, which has been, I think, by all accounts, absolutely horrendous, I don't think anyone can argue with that. Uh, we have seen hundreds of thousands dead as a result of this and lives destroyed, businesses destroyed. Uh, had we started using these tests back in April or May, even June or July or August, when cases were pretty low in much of the country or just starting to pick up again, um, we would have not seen those outbreaks pick up. And that's the whole idea of keeping that R value below one, keeping for every 100 people who are infected, have them infect fewer than 90. You can still have 90 new infections occur, but as long as that's lower than the number of people who are infected in the last generation, the outbreak will not happen. So we wouldn't have seen these rises in cases. We wouldn't have seen us hit 300, 400,000 new cases per day. It could have been 20,000 new cases per day through the whole fall with minimal mortality, we would have seen a very, very different picture had we started this at the beginning of last summer. We did a, an economic evaluation of this with, with Harvard economists, and uh, ultimately we found that with an investment of between 20, at that point we were being conservative, so we actually said 50 billion, but, but I hold that we do not need 50 billion to do this. 
we would have uh, the return on investment, we would have saved at least half a trillion dollars in that uh, had we done that and probably more. We were being very conservative with it all. Um, so lives would have been saved. We would not have seen the massive destruction we've seen. We could have potentially seen an environment where where stores remained open through the holidays and you know cases would have been overall low enough that uh, people are just going about their day you know every, twice a week they they spend 30 seconds and run their covid test after they brush their teeth and that is enough to stop this outbreak from continuing to persist before we let you go, um, I do want to ask for your thoughts on the vaccine. Uh, the vaccine has begun to be distributed, but we are hearing a lot of mixed things, a lot of different opinions on it. And I know many Americans are hesitant to take it. What are your thoughts on the vaccine? Well, I want to be very clear for anyone who's hesitant. The vaccine is very safe. We have seen huge numbers of vaccines be given out, millions, millions, millions. Uh, there are, it is an extremely safe vaccine. Unfortunately, the extremely rare events that occur make headlines. Uh, but, um, you know, if we, if we put it in the context of car accidents, uh, and we put a car accident on, on every headline, every time one happens, you know, we would think that driving is extremely unsafe when it is extremely safe. So I want to be very clear that I would personally, and I have, I recommend to my family to get them. I've looked at the safety profiles of them. Uh, I believe that uh, we are that the vaccine is not going to be the end-all, be-all of this pandemic. My grave concern is that we will see uh, vaccine immunological escape, meaning the virus learns to mutate in such a way that uh, the vaccine really loses some of its effectiveness. And uh, if we see that, we could find ourselves in a very difficult position where we are trying to then decide uh, how do we vaccinate people with new versions of the vaccine? Do we give the, the new versions to people who have already been vaccinated or to people who have not yet received even one vaccine? It will create a lot of problems if we have to go in that direction. Certainly. Well, we so appreciate your time. We appreciate you being on the front lines and all of the research that you're doing. Uh, how can our listeners follow your work and stay informed of that research that you're doing? Well, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is uh, at Michael Minna underscore lab. And I'm also, I'm, I'm often writing op-eds or quoted in, in the national media, but, um, but really I would say, don't follow me. Uh, I mean, you can definitely follow me on Twitter if you want, um, but what I would really like is for people to write to their Congress people people to write to their senators, phone your governor, whatever it takes, and demand uh, that you understand the reality of, of paper strip testing and rapid testing at home, and that you want that type of test, if you do, that is, you know, that this is a, a tool that is meant to empower you. It is a tool that is meant to give you information to let you know if you are a danger to, to when you go to your parents' house for dinner. We have to stop this, this rote, idea of just nobody can do anything social for the next year or two. That is, you know, it is destructive to our society. That's a major component of public health is still psychological health. And we have to find other avenues to keep people safe while we continue with society, uh, how we know it. And I think that uh, these tests can make everyone safer 
to go to work, to go to school, to go to church, to go shopping, uh, they will improve the safety and they will reduce the burden of this virus on society. And I, I hope that people let their uh, representatives and elected officials know that that is what they're asking for. Dr. Minna, thank you so much for your time today. We truly appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm very happy to uh, have joined you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal